two things that you must do mm-hmm. that must come from you as the team leader. It cannot be delegated. Number one, you have to have a vision and be able to articulate that vision. That's something that cannot be delegated. It has to come from you. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is you have to be able to manage your culture. Create your life. Create ta propre vie. Create your life. Create your life. Create your life. On skip your liver. You better create your life. <laughs> create your life. Create la vie. Create your life. Create your life. people this is the create your life series i'm your host kevin y brown and it's an amazing day uh one of those chilly but not exactly cold sundays uh very happy to be here humble to be here uh in the studio and today we have a an amazing guest um i've actually had the opportunity to work with this gentleman and see him uh from the ceo seat we do our monthly ceo talks but when i tell you that this man has um, a reputation amongst his staff members and in his industry as someone who's a trailblazer, who's good at creating culture and making amazing things happen. Uh, trust me, I, I am not lying. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, so this brother is the CEO of CHCR um, Community Health Center in Richmond, which is out on Staten Island. They uh, He runs and oversees a number of uh, facilities and over 100 employees and is Basically, man, trailblazing and making things happen. So, uh, Mr. Henry Thompson, please say hello to the Create Your Life Series family. Hello, family, and thank you for having me. Man, no, thank you for taking the time out. I know you are busy. You know, you you recently, uh, you know, had you got a son. You know, married, in grad school, getting your doctorate. I mean, dude, what is it that you don't do? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for all that. It it um it really is humbling even to be in a position to take advantage of all of the opportunities. Yeah, um, family is most important. Um, as you mentioned, I have a 15 month old. Yes, and so um, nothing can really prepare you for that experience mm-hmm. of fatherhood of parenting, and so um, having him come into our lives and being blessed with um, being a father, um, it puts a lot of things in perspective. Mm. And so I wouldn't change anything for the world, so, but um, it's a good experience. Okay. That being said, man, can you walk us through how you uh, kind of got here? Because you're, you're originally from Miami, Florida. You grew up in a, a single-parent household, correct, correct? With, your, with your mother. Correct. So tell us about that experience growing up in Florida, you know, how you even made it all the way here to, uh, to New York City. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yes, I did grow up, I was actually born in Freeport, Bahamas. Okay. So, um, immigrated here when I was about uh, one and a half years old. Okay. Grew up in Miami, Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to school in Miami, grew up in a single family home. Um, my mother was everything. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I always had a lot of male involvement in my life. Okay. My, my mother was from a family of eight, five brothers. Wow. And two sisters. Okay. And so always had uncles, a lot of cousins, um, a lot of people um, in my life. Uh, went to Archbishop Curley High School. Mm-hmm. And then it was Catholic school. It was originally an all-boys school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was started by the um, Edmund Rice Christian Brothers. And um, in 1974, I believe, it merged with an all-girls school, Notre Dame, that was located um, about a mile away. So it became Archbishop Curley Notre Dame High mm-hmm. School. And um, why that's important, and I think it, it contributed to my overall development, is my high school closed last year. And um, this high school in Miami, Florida, it was one of the first high schools to integrate even prior to the decision of Brown versus Board of Education. Oh, wow. So the, the high, my high school was very diverse. So my experience was always very um, diverse as far as um, different nationalities, different people who attended the school. And so I was fortunate. I played sports throughout my high school career, and I was um, fortunate to get a football scholarship to go to University of Connecticut. Right. And so I attended University of Connecticut, graduated from there, um, and then transitioned back to Miami, Florida, right. started my career, then went to grad school at University of Miami, mm-hmm. uh, pursued two master's degrees, yeah. and then um, eventually transitioned to New York City for a job opportunity back in 2008, mm-hmm. and um, I've been in the Tri-City area um, ever since. Ever since. So, you know, you and I, we had the opportunity to talk at length. And there's one particular story that you told me that I felt was really, um, I guess, just powerful in terms of the the strength of your mother. And, you know, what when she set her mind to do something or something was going to happen, then it had to happen. Sure. And that was when you, you talked about your hand. Sure. You uh, The doctors had told you that they were going to have to chop your hand off. Yeah. So <laughs> even, you, were, you know, growing up, um, I was a hothead. Mm-hmm. I grew up as an only child, and, you know, you hear about people being bullied and all of these type of things, and, you know, when you're growing up as an only child, you know, some people prey on that. So right. I got to a point where um, I learned to defend myself, mm-hmm. and um, I wasn't somebody who was looking for fights, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I would defend myself at all costs. Mm-hmm. And my sophomore year in high school, I got, a, I got into a fight in homeroom, mm-hmm. and I got into a fight in homeroom that morning. After the fight was over, I had a cut on my hand, mm-hmm. and at the time, um, my football coach, um, he came and got me, um, and he saw the cut. He sprayed some antiseptic on it and um, went and met with the, um, I think it was the assistant dean at the time to find out what happened and everything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and apologize. We both apologize, and we went about our day. Mm-hmm. So towards the end of the day, because at that time I was playing JV basketball, mm-hmm. and we had a game that night. Right. So towards the end of the day, around 2 o'clock, my hand was very swollen. Mm-hmm. And it was very swollen, and I went to my coach so they could take a look at it, and they started to press it to see if I had any broken bones because they thought my hand was broken because right, it was so right. swollen. And so at that point, when he was pressing it, I, I almost passed out. 
had to lean against the wall, brace against the wall mm-hmm. to, um, you know, just make sure I, I didn't pass out. So from there, um, my mom was contacted and they told my mom basically I had to go to the emergency room. Right. So went to the emergency room at Jackson Memorial Hospital on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't tell you in, in that point in the 80s, going mm-hmm. to Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is the public hospital, public safety net hospital for Miami, mm-hmm. Florida, it was very busy. So when I got there, they saw my hand was swollen and immediately they, you know, I went for x-rays. Mm-hmm. They put a temporary cast on there because they thought it was broken. And so the x-rays came back negative. So, um, so imagine I went to the emergency room five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. By the time the attending, the emergency room physician saw me, it was maybe three, four in the morning. Because at that time, based on the severity level of all of the cases, those things are priorities. So mm-hmm. there was gunshot wounds, right, right. victims, there were car accidents. It was a whole the emergency room was crazy. Mm-hmm. And so me being sitting there Mm-hmm. You know, all they do is put the, the curtain, but you can hear people screaming. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no anesthesia when that trauma and all that shock is there. So, you know, that in itself was an experience. So by the, by the time he saw, oh, the physician saw me three, four in the morning, the, mm-hmm. the x-rays had came back negative, And then I was immediately admitted. Eight o'clock that morning, I was admitted to the hospital. Okay. And so... I was admitted, and they said I had a hand infection. It was very bad, and I needed to have surgery. Mm-hmm. So the type of surgery I had, it could not, um, they could not stitch the wound after they did the surgery, that um, everything just had to discharge. Mm. And part of what they were saying is that if I had waited, the infection would have went up my arm. Oh, wow. And so I would have been at risk of maybe losing my hand. Right. And so, um, so at that point, I, I remember the night. It was the day before my birthday. Mm-hmm. I I remember watching the show Amen. Mm-hmm. It's probably before your time. But, it was, <laughs> uh, but this was a show with Sherman Hensley, who, who played the Jeffersons. Yeah, yeah. He had yeah. a show Amen. I can remember watching the credits. It was coming on, and that's when the orderly came and got me, and took me to surgery. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up spending six days um, in the hospital, in Jackson Memorial Hospital. And that was my sophomore year. Okay. So the next two years after that, mm-hmm. I was um, going to occupational therapy just to be able to make a fist right. uh, on my hand again because I could not mm-hmm. make a fist. So I couldn't even lift weights because I could not squeeze the bar Right. because I still had the, the wound there. Mm-hmm. And so only thing I could do, I lost a lot of weight mm-hmm. when, while I was there, but the only thing I could do was really do push-ups and um, do other type of calisthenics, but right. I couldn't really even do weights. Um, so to even be able to um, play good enough. That's what I was going to ask you. To get a scholarship, a scholarship. At D1 scholarship. Yeah, 1AA. And so to me, right. it, it was a blessing in itself. Yeah. And because even the date that I signed my letter of intent, I have the picture with my mom was there when I was signing. Mm-hmm. You can even say, see when I'm holding the pen, it's kind of hard hard to hold the pen. Right. And because I'm right-handed and it was my dominant hand, mm-hmm. I couldn't really write with my left when I was mm-hmm. going to classes. Right, right, right. You know, we didn't have 
the technology to record the teacher and everything mm -hmm. like that. People wasn't taking notes for me. So I just developed a technique to just be able to memorize and absorb information. So you had to at least the, the key points. And, you know, that was something um, that really affected me. So how did your, how did your mom really uh, impact you? What did your mom do while you were growing up? Because I'm trying to understand how this all transitioned into you basically uh, continuing to excel. Like, what was that well, impact? Well, she, she, from her standpoint, she always wanted me to be independent. And she was never, um, she didn't treat me like her friend. Mm -hmm. And she made that very clear. You know, I'm the boss. Right. You know, and she always taught me to be independent, very respectful. Even to this day, I don't think I've ever heard my mother, she never cursed at me, like, use profanity mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. As much as she's um, been upset or doing things, you know, as a, as a boy, you know, you get into different things. Right. But she's never gotten to that point mm -hmm. where she even used profanity. And um, so there's always been that respect level. Mm -hmm. And I just remember when I was going up to UConn, you know, you know, and, you, and when you go into any football program, everybody was the man. In high school. Now, on, the, on their team. Everybody right, right, was right. the captain. Everybody was the homecoming king. Everybody is this and that. Every, you know, yeah. um, everybody has that type of bravado. And so my mom wanted to come with me. And so I didn't want my mom to come with me. I didn't want people saying, oh, here come his mom coming on <laughs> campus with him and everything like that. But, you know, I was the only child. It was the first time going away from home. My mom said, look, I'm coming. I don't care what you say. Mm -hmm. And um, as a part of that transition, I remember... My mother gave me, she gave me a couple hundred dollars. And then she just said, little brother, you on your way. You on your own from this way out. Mm -hmm. And just to tell me, look, you know, I brought you this far. Right. You know, the decisions that you make now, what you do with your life, it's on you. Mm. Always will be there to support you. But my mother's position was that if anything ever happened to her, she wouldn't be able to leave this world knowing that she did the best she could with me. And so some of those life lessons, even though I didn't understand it fully when I was growing up, you know, a lot of those things, those life lessons was a, um, a part of how I tackle life now. And so even from an early age, she planted that seed of education. Right. I would never miss school. I, I was always getting perfect attendance. Mm hmm all the time. Right. And so until this happened to me in high school, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I missed those days because I was in the hospital. But um, after that, they really missed school. And what did your mom do? My mom, she worked as an environmental services worker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fancy title for a housekeeper. Right. And I think that most people, when they come from different countries, especially mm -hmm. in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. if they don't have formal education, mm -hmm. um, going into even healthcare industry, hospitality management industry, they mm -hmm. work a lot of these domestic type of jobs. Right. And so um, she, she worked in a number of healthcare facilities throughout her career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing she said to me before she retired, she was like, Henry, I, I was always blessed with having a job. Mm -hmm. She never was unemployed. Right. And she was, and I, I, I never even remember even growing up, mm -hmm. we never had public assistance. We never had any of these things but even though my mother at the time was not let's say making six figures or right. a lot of money mm -hmm. she still lived within her means her means mm -hmm. 
And, you know, my mom would hustle and she'll help people and make money on the side when she right, could. Right. And, you know, she always do plan uh, for the future. And so your mom, she basically put in the work and did jobs, you know, and worked hard all the time so that she could provide an opportunity for you. Sure. And she instilled an education and also, you know, perfect attendance, you know, showing up for your success sure. for you. You did that. You you graduate from uh, from school in Connecticut. And one of your, your first jobs was working at Coca-Cola. Correct. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. And then also how has working at Coca-Cola shaped you to be a, a thriving CEO right now? Sure. So, um, so throughout college, I had different jobs during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, since we were on scholarship, we couldn't have a job during, during the year, right. during the semesters. Mm-hmm. And so always had a job in the summer, and then that would set me up for the fall semester. And so um, my senior year, um, a, a lot of the players were able to get jobs with Coca-Cola, um, the East Hartford branch. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was an independent distributor of Coca-Cola Pauline Company out of New York. Yeah. And so at the time, one of the executives, um, they were a big supporter of the UConn football program. So different players, you could get um, summer jobs. Right. And so um, that summer, um, after um, I graduated, you know, I was able to get a job there because at the time me and several of my roommates um, we were living off campus and um, uh, we didn't I didn't want to break the lease and so I took it as an opportunity let me work make some make some money I knew I was transitioning back to Miami mm-hmm. um, and so it was an opportunity to to work so initially it was a summer job mm-hmm. and then they asked me to stay on to, through the fall Okay. And so I was able to work through the fall and then that December moved back to Miami. And it was interesting working at that time because it was during a transition where Coca-Cola was transitioning from the 12-ounce cans to the 20-ounce bottles. Mm-hmm. And so helping to coordinate the logistics and different accounts as a part of that transition Absolutely. was um, something that, you know, was very interesting. Um, there was no laptop, <laughs> so so Analog. doing yeah so there was so yeah, there was right. no there was no excel spreadsheet right you know? right so do the doing the log and maintaining all those records mm-hmm. was something i was responsible for right. as well as being on the truck and making the deliveries mm-hmm. and at that point we we developed we de- um, delivered units to practically anywhere you can fit a soda machine yeah. or any other type of unit mm-hmm. i mean we've taken the face of the door off machines. We've taken machines up the stairs when buildings with no elevators. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, machines that have been vandalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, third-party vendors. Um, and so that was throughout Connecticut and Southeast Massachusetts. And so being able to work at Coca-Cola and basically a company where the product sells itself, right? right. Because even though you might have someone to come sell you Coca-Cola, let's say a salesman or a merchandiser, most of the time you're still going to go with that product because it's so strong and you know exactly what you're right, getting. Right, right. And so being in that type of organization, I kind of saw how it ran itself. Mm-hmm. But also working in um, an environment where I was much younger than my counterparts mm-hmm. 
it was a uh, it was a union environment. Mm-hmm. You had lifers, people who had been there 30, 35 years. Right. Um, at that time, I'm fresh out of college, um, fresh out of um, finishing uh, finish up my senior season in football. Yeah. And so, um, to me, the 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 job was not hard work. Right. It was not hard work. Mm-hmm. But I knew that that wasn't the end for me either. What are some of the skills that you feel that you picked up during this time of doing this? Some might say, you know, this is laborious. Sure. Um, you know, moving and installing in those machines, uh, but also getting the opportunity to interact with so many different people on so many different levels. Sure. What are some of those, those skill sets that you feel like you... Well, first of all, it's very humbling mm-hmm. because while I was working there, mm-hmm. I also had to go back to UConn. Mm-hmm. And we had, because UConn was one of the biggest accounts, and we had to install machines there. Yeah. Just, I mean, several months later, these were some of my same um, student colleagues. You know, so first of all, it was a humbling experience because while people may have thought, hey, once you graduate, you know, you have a corporate job waiting for you, Mm -hmm. it doesn't always work that way because you may have a couple of other... um, take other different types of positions before mm-hmm. you hit your stride right. and what you really want to do or w- once you develop what your your niche is. Mm-hmm. And so being able to relate and work in that type of environment, mm-hmm. it taught me even at that early age how to relate to people on different levels. Because even working in the, in the warehouse, there were different generations. You had people who were old enough to be my grandparents or people who had grandkids or kids my age. Right. And I was working hand-in-hand with them, making just as much as they were making. I didn't have the enough time. Mm-hmm, I hadn't put in that amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so even at that point, mm-hmm. um, the respect came based on your work ethic. Right. You know, who you know may get you To that opportunity. But at the end of the day, the colleagues, the people who who are working side by side with you, Mm -hmm. um, that respect comes from the work ethic. Mm. And, you know, we see that today, even in my my own organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, we're dealing with multiple generations. You know, people who are now coming into the workforce, people who are existing, you're mixing old with new. Um, So there's a lot of those those dynamics that are uh, still at play. And I heard the um, New York City um, chancellor Mm -hmm. um, give a speech. And, you know, what they started to really talk about or hone in on is even the curriculums that are, you know, being taught in the schools today, Mm -hmm. you know, is more uh, team-based concepts. Absolutely. Team-based projects. Mm -hmm. So that people understand when you go into the, a real organization or the real world, you got to work with other people. Absolutely. And some of those people might not look like you, might not sound like you, might not share the same philosophies with you. But at the end of the day, you have a product. Right. And all of you have to embrace that product and then be on the same page so to deliver. You being a CEO of CACR, uh, how, what are, can you give us three ways that you instill that type of uh, environment for your employees to make sure that everybody is uh, open sure. to working uh, in a team and 
you know, no matter, you know, what the differences are amongst them? Sure. Well, I think, um, well, two, two, two of the things, at least from my perspective, mm-hmm. um, that has to come from me. And mm-hmm. I think this, Top down. I think, I think this is, um, um, consistent if you're a business owner, if you're an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. if you're a head coach, if you're leading a team of people, right? Whatever industry, mm-hmm. I think two things, and you know, I I don't I don't own this. It, it it came from a meeting and one of the consultants who were challenging all of us as CEOs and team leaders. Two things that you must do mm-hmm. that must come from you as the team leader. It cannot be delegated. Number one. You have to have a vision and be able to articulate that vision. That's something that cannot be delegated. It has to come from you. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is you have to be able to manage your culture. It cannot be delegated. It cannot be, um, is it, it cannot be passed on. Everything else in the organization pretty much can be delegated. But those two things, having a vision and managing your culture, are not things that can be delegated. So from the onset, being able to express a vision, mm-hmm. you know, being able to have something that everybody can rally, rally around. You know, my position is that, look, our vision is that we want to p- provide the best service that we can provide. I want to be able to be comfortable enough to bring my own family for certain services. And if I'm not comfortable that the organization is providing the best care and the best service possible mm-hmm. that I'm comfortable with bringing my own family there, mm-hmm. then you know what? I don't need to lead the team. Mm. And then second, as far as culture, um, I've um, always had an open door policy. And, you know, it sounds cliche as an open door policy because mm-hmm. even though you have an open door policy, most of the time people don't want to exercise it. Right. You know, but what I've tried to do is that every person that was hired in the organization mm-hmm. after November 2nd, 2009, mm-hmm. I've had a meeting with them. I've had a one-to-one with them right. before they joined the organization. Just to communicate philosophies, just to share experiences, just to also let them know that, you know, I'm accessible. And, you know, some of the takeaway that I've gotten back over the years is that some people have worked in corporations where they have never met the CEO. Right. That they have never, you know, and I, it was a great show that used to come on called Undercover CEO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they I've used to take go and do menial jobs and and people mm-hmm. didn't even know that they were meeting with them. Mm-hmm. And so to me, this speaks to the culture. Right. That it's not necessarily top down, but it's across right. and flat. Okay. And real quick, we got two minutes before we have to cut to a, a, a musical break. What inspired you to switch from big business like Coca-Cola, working at these other companies? You know, you have your MBA, but now you are in the healthcare space. What inspired that transition? Um, well, first, I, I, I worked at Coca-Cola. Then I spent a brief time working at Royal Caribbean in the human mm-hmm. resources, corporate human resources. Mm-hmm. And then I started work, work for a state labor department. Right. And then from there, I realized that, you know, I wanted to work within the community. And wanted to work to 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 feel like I was giving back um, to the community that gave me so much in turn. 
And also, my mom had spent many years working at a number of hospitals within the community. And so I realized that even throughout those years, she always had a passion for serving people. And um, indirectly, I started to embrace a lot of those different virtues. Okay. And so for me, working in healthcare didn't really feel like it was a job per se, but really felt like it was a calling and what I was meant to do. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, beautiful people, we are here with Mr. Henry Thompson. Call in 212-650-6903 if you have any questions for us. Also, shout out to everybody who is uh, with us on Facebook Live, our Create Your Life family. Chris is in the studio. Noah's in the studio. Hey, what's up, everyone? Um, give us a call. Call in. Ask some questions. Beautiful people, this is the Create Your Life series. I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. We are back. So happy to have uh, Henry Thompson in the studio with us. Henry, you here? I'm here. All right, cool. Before we left, we had the opportunity to hear about you, your inspiration, why you even went and got into healthcare. Uh, one things that one thing that I want to acknowledge is the fact that you have been CEO of Community Health Center Richmond for eight years. Yes. Most CEOs average about what two, two and a half to three years. Um, what are some of the reasons why you feel like you've been able to sustain as CEO, and what are some of the misconceptions about the CEO role that most people get wrong? Um, that's an excellent question. And um, let me first say, when when I was first appointed CEO as the organization, is I had no intentions or thought that or time frame for how long I would serve in the position. And so it's been an interesting um, journey, a very good journey. Uh, when I first joined, it was a um, financial turnaround and really helping to take the organization to the next level. Yeah. It was during the um, first um, stimulus, economic stimulus package mm-hmm. um, when President Obama was, was in office. And so there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, the economy had just tanked. There was a lot of different things going on. Yeah. And so um, it was an interesting time to, to still be in, be in healthcare. Right. And um, my particular center, it had um, initially uh, was born out of a, a previous hospital system, mm-hmm. which had filed for bankruptcy and was looking to close that site. So an uh, independent organization was created after that, mm-hmm. and some of those original employees became some of the first employees of the center. Right. And so it had already been three years in the business when, when I was uh, appointed. So it was an opportunity for some fresh leadership, right. fresh, fresh perspective, mm-hmm. and really to help um, chart the journey that would bring us into the future. That being said, how did you get those employees who had been there before you on board with your vision? Well, well, first first thing I did was um, I just needed to see um, and listen. Mm-hmm. So first thing I had to do was just listen. There was right. all of the things that are documented um, of all of the issues and concerns. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I needed to do was just, just listen. Mm-hmm. And so being able to... Um, listen, um, um, there was an icebreaker that I do Okay. where um, when I first met with all employees, I asked everyone to introduce themselves, 
name, title, um, where they work, how long they've been working with the center, mm-hmm. and then something about them that's not on their resume. Yeah. And and usually um, I tell people to, look, stay away from, like, children and religious affiliation, that type of stuff, mm-hmm. simply because I know everybody's proud of those type of things. Right. You want to get to know this person. I want to... What I look for as a part of the exercise is looking at the intangibles, you know? And so through that, that's that really helped to disarm people. Mm-hmm. Because if I have someone who's a gardener, for example, right. and who likes to work on their yard, to me, to be to do that type of work, you have to be very patient. Right. You have to be very calm. You have to be very patient. So these are qualities when they transition to the workplace, when things start to happen, you don't want somebody, you want somebody who's going to be able to be calm right? and and so forth. So being able to do that is just a way for me to start to get to know, know the staff. Mm-hmm. And then I also participate in that as well. So even bringing up the stuff that's not on my resume, having play football at the Division One level or working for Coca-Cola or other, some of these other things, these are some of the things that people don't know about me. Right. And so um, I think being transparent that way really helped to um, kind of set the tone. Mm-hmm. And then from there, being able to, you know, incorporate some of their ideas and move forward. You know, and, you know, there's all these different dimensions of leadership. You know, right. you could talk about authoritative leadership, transformational leadership, all these different situational leadership, mm-hmm. all these servant leadership, everything. Right. Right. You know, when you're in a turnaround situation, sometimes you need to make decisions. Right. It's not the time to build consensus. Right. And then when you're thinking about the future, you also need to be able to build consensus and do, do all those different things. So. The environment will also dictate mm-hmm. the type of style. Mm-hmm. And so coming into an organization, you have to be able to understand that. Of those leadership styles that you just named, which, which would you say are your, let's say, top two go-tos? Because it seems like you know a lot of them. And, yeah. I mean, for me, I can flip back between okay. all of them right. for the simple reason um, is that, you know, Depending on who your, who your audience is, right. you know, um, you'll be able to di- we'll be able to dictate which one you use. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you're going to donors and helping to um, raise revenue, that's a different type of leadership style that you use. Right. You know, um, so I, I would say you know, servant leadership is almost the reason for working in an organization mm-hmm. where you're serving people. Right. And 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 really, um, the approach that I have used with my staff is that, look, um, you don't report to me. I report to you. Mm. So, you know, what are the tools and the resources that you need mm-hmm. that can make you more effective in your role? Okay. And really switching it 
And so it's my job to go and secure those resources. Do you need more training? Do you need technology? Do you mm. need all of these other things that will help you to fulfill your role? Okay. I want to switch uh, modes a little bit and kind of get a little personal. You're the CEO. You're getting your doctor. You're in a doctoral program right now. You're a husband. You have a 15-month-old son, Yuri, who is actually running around with five-pound weights right now. You show me the picture. <laughs> Such a strong guy. What are some of your techniques and keys to balancing it all? Sure. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, I put it all in, keep it all into perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, even reaching the highest heights in academic excellence doesn't mean that you know it all. Mm -hmm. You know, because every day I'm still learning things new. You know, during the break, you was talking about Spiderfly and some of these other mm -hmm. technology platforms. I'm not even on those things. Right. Um, my wife is, she's a techie. She does technology integration in the classroom right. she, where she goes and, and trains teachers and models. and So she knows all of those di different things. So she called me a dinosaur. <laughs> so, um, but I, I believe that for the space I'm in, I'm able to utilize mm -hmm. um, and, and utilize those things. So for me, um, when it comes to family life, Mm -hmm. um, um, even my wife, she's been with me along the journey. Right. So she was with me before I got into the role, even though we were dating at the time. Mm -hmm. She was with me when I was unemployed and collecting unemployment. Right. Um, then being able to get appointed, then have a contract renewal and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So being able to have a partner who understands the journey mm -hmm. Um, and not somebody who's competing with me, right? You know, it definitely makes things. Um, it it definitely provides that balance that we all need. Okay. Um. Wow, I like that, and definitely I like that 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 answer. Um, I've personally seen your employees chant, you know, that they want to keep you as the CEO of the company in a leadership, in a strategic planning meeting that I was running. Um, how does that make you feel? And can you give us a couple of uh, misconceptions about the CEO uh, suite that people may have? Well, I think one of the things um, that may be a misconception, at least from my, my point of view, mm -hmm. based on my own experience, is that we're not approachable. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, it's a it's a awesome weight when, hey, some of the things start and stop with you. Mm -hmm. And some of the decisions you make could affect people's lives. Yeah. So, you know, it's a role that should be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And so when you have that much weight, sometimes people may have the misconceptions that, well, my issue is not something that he or she should be bothered with. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the big misconceptions. I joke around. I like a good joke from here to there. Yeah. Um, um, I'm a human. I laugh at myself. <laughs> I can, you know, I can take a joke. Yeah. And um, I even, you know, I, I even, one of, even one of the staff members, one of my other staff members says, she, she is one of my staff members, she can do a good impression of me. 
Oh, wow. But she's never done it in front of me. Yeah. You know, it's almost like that movie Joe Clark uh-huh. where he walked in on one of the students doing the impression of him. Uh-huh. And he gave the face like he was mad, but he he really wasn't. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the type of environment mm-hmm. that, um, you know, helps to keep things, um, you know, in a in a friendly atmosphere. Okay. All right. Now I want to switch switch modes with you, and uh, we want to jump into the dolphin tank. Now okay. the dolphin tank, you know, it's pretty safe. It's uh, you know, it's no sharks in there, just dolphins. You know, we all swimming together. And so these are questions that, you know, everybody has to answer when they come on the show. Are you ready to jump in? Sure. Okay. Number one, um, what's the top technology that you're using to make your business run smoothly? We have um, an electronic health records system. Mm -hmm. And that system, we're on the latest version. Okay. And so it ties into our... Um, accounting system and our financial software. Mm-hmm. And it's crucial because um, patient revenues mm-hmm. accounts for 80% of our business. Right. And so um, that's that's the top tech. What's it called? E-Clinical Works. E-Clinical Works. Okay. Awesome. Uh, what's your favorite quote or model? Go hard or go home. I like that. I like that. Why? I mean, this was something that we always used to use in football mm-hmm. before we went into the weight room or before we went to practice. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to even one of my philosophies, well, one of the things that even the coach used to say to me in high school when we go into practice. Mm-hmm. And I have several of them. Um, one used to say, um, um, every day get better. Every day you're going to get better or worse, but you're not going to be the same. And then I had another coach, and this was in basketball. He used to say, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Hmm. Okay. And But go hard or go home, I think that's the philosophy. Um, being able to have the mindset mm-hmm. that I'm going to give everything I got right. when, I'm, when I walk in the door. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to leave it all in the organization. Absolutely. And getting in that mindset, um, to me, is something that I try to use every day. Okay. Uh, favorite book? Um, my favorite book, outside of the Bible, right? Okay. <laughs> um, I really like the um, Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. Um, to me, this is the ultimate um, description of survival, mm-hmm. humility, mm-hmm. forgiveness, mm-hmm. Um, all of the different emotions that we go through as um, humans. Okay. One of the most important questions of the show, three jewels that you would tell someone looking to create the best life. I think the first jewel is that you have to be comfortable with the person in the mirror. Because mm. if you're not comfortable with the person in the mirror, if you're trying to be somebody else, if you're trying to live up to other people's idea of what success is or anything like that, to me, you, you've already failed. Okay. 
Um, number two, um, I think that you need to be able to have people who will be in front of you, behind you, to the right of you, to the left of you. There are those people that will do it with you. They'll do it for you. They'll do it on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to um, understand the people you have with you. And, you know, everybody's not going to be um, along for the ride. Right. They don't, some people going to drop off. You know, uh, so I think, you know, you, you have to be able to do that. I mean, I have staff members. I ask them, quite frankly, hey, do you think you could sit in the seat? If you had to fire your best friend tomorrow, would you be able to do it? Mm. You know? Okay. And, you know, if you cannot do that, mm -hmm. if you're not prepared to do that, then I would say save yourself the heartache. Okay. And number three... I think you have to have passion mm -hmm. for whatever you do. Um, money, accolades, you know, all of those different things. You can be the hero today and the goat tomorrow. But if you don't have a passion for what you do and what you bring to the table, it won't, it won't be long-lasting. Okay. Uh, real quick. What's next for you uh, coming up with uh, CACR and yourself personally? Well, um, for CACR, we have several projects that we're working on right now. We have two um, new locations that we are developing as new construction um, from the ground up. One facility is um, a replacement site for our flagship health center. And the second project is a ground up construction for a new facility in a different section of Staten Island. Okay. And so both projects are valued over $20 million. Wow. It's going to um, also double our current staff mm -hmm. and really um, help us to be financially sustainable for the future. Okay. And um, how can we keep in contact with you? If, let's say, someone listening is uh, looking for employment or wants to know more about your style, is there any way? Yeah. I mean, um, if for, for people who are interested in employment opportunities, you can go to our website, look at the career opportunities section mm -hmm. at www.chcrichmond.org, mm -hmm. or you can send a copy of your cover letter as well as resume to careers at chcrichmond.org. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to H. Thompson, T H O M P S O N, at chcrichmond.org. And um, if I'm in a position to answer any questions um, that we didn't address on the show, um, I can address it through the, through the email as well. Okay. Well, man, Henry, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate you. No, thank you for having me. Thank hey. you for having me and um, wonderful job that you're doing. And I think the series is um, very impactful and thoughtful. Thank you. And so I wish you continued success. Okay. Thank you. Beautiful people. This is the Create Your Life series. I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. And we are here with our guest, uh, Mr. Henry Thompson. And it's time for the turnaround. If you don't know what the turnaround is, it is when our guest gets to ask me up to three questions that they want, and I have to answer them no matter what. And you can blame my staff for this. But, um, Henry, what you got for me? So first thing I want to know, Kevin, is um, 
what's your vision mm-hmm. for the Create Your Life series? Wow, what's my vision? Uh, my vision for the Create Your Life series is to see it grow and really impact and help people um, create their best lives. That's, that's like my thing. I and really enjoy seeing people at their best. Um, I wanted to grow uh, into a traveling series where we actually get to go out into the world and interview people who are creating their lives across the world. Uh, that would be fun. And also for us to uh, branch off and have some different legs. You know, we have like a series of books and, and things of that nature. So uh, very excited about the possibilities. And I also want us to get on um, to expand and be syndicated on other uh, networks and also for it to become something uh, like a like a TV show where people can literally tune in. I know we have, you know, our dedicated listeners who come in on Facebook Live, Instagram Live and stuff like that. But I really want it to be a movement. And, uh, you know, a culture, a culture piece, timeless. Good, good. So um, I know that you have different staff members, mm-hmm. people who work remotely and do things at a distance. Yes. How are you managing your culture? Uh, within? Wow. Um, so I'm going to be 100% honest with you. Being, having, being able to witness you in your role has helped me tremendously. Uh, from the times that we've worked together and I sometimes call you and ask you different questions. So one of the biggest things is is that anybody can on my team can always ask me or the, I have an open door policy. You can ask me anything. You can challenge some of the things that I, you know what I mean, that um, that we create. You know, if you have some different ideas that I'm always welcome to them and, and willing to adapt. Um, in some situations, like you said earlier, you know, a decision has to be made right there. Or, you know, especially if it's financial and things like that. So I will have to, uh, you know, my decision might take precedent. But just being open, being honest and being willing to make a, uh, to admit when I make a mistake is, is huge. And just leaving that communication uh, open. And so there's a check in and we have like um, basically ways of operating and, and deadlines and checklists for things that have to be done every single um, week. And so my biggest thing is to make sure that we have a routine in place so that everything is kind of working like clockwork. On, on any given day so that if someone needs to take time off or, for example, Noah and his girlfriend just had to leave, well, everything is in place for him to win because he did what he needed to do as far as filming the last part of the show. And so it's okay for him to walk out because the work has been done. And I can do the rest of the breakdown. This is not something that happens repeatedly, et cetera. Does that make sense? Okay. And I guess the, the last question I would ask is that, well, first, um, um, how I... Um, came to know of the type of work that you do is mm-hmm. looking at the video when you was in Australia. Yeah. When you did the conference and it was the nonverbal um, yeah. cues that you, your audience that you had participating. And I was like, man, this would be a different approach when we do our annual in-service and strategic planning to have someone come with this type of technique. Yes. You know, so that's... When I saw that, I immediately saw, okay, boom, this is something, it would be different. Mm-hmm. I think it would, it, it would disarm people because they wouldn't know what to expect right. and, and, and so forth. So how would you take that? Because I, I know you did it several years ago, so I don't know if you've um, revisited how you do that exercise or that workshop or that series. Mm-hmm. How would you use that type of technique to, hey, what if the New York Giants called you? Mm-hmm. Or what if another team of people call and said, Kevin, you know, we want you to come and 
and do this for our staff? Well, it's an opportunity. Number one, um, all of my presentations are very interactive, and that is original. I literally made that up. Um, and what it is, the technique that he's talking about, Create Your Life Series Fam, I do an exercise where I show people that leadership is not about the words that you use, but about the actions that you take. And you can literally, I literally got a room of 925 people um, from 25 different countries that did not speak English to move and do this exercise because it's all about the action that you take. If I was to get a call from an organization like an MLB team or an NBA team, it, the, the exercise is actually evergreen, but it's the content that you put behind it and the context that you put behind it that makes the difference when landing the point. Um, every action that you take when you're doing a speech, um, it, it has to have a purpose. And so that's why it's very, very important to to know and do your research and understand who it is that you're uh, presenting to. Because if the information isn't relevant that you're delivering, then you're playing games. You know, and one of my biggest uh, policies whenever taking on any project is, is that, number one, be informed, but also make the person who hired you look good. And the only way to do that is, number one, to be good at what you do, but to also be very thorough in your research and ask as many questions as possible, you know, for, and even that even goes back to the culture and, and, the, and the style. Like you said earlier, what you do with your staff is you ask questions when you don't know. I ask questions when I don't know stuff, you know, so it's just one of those things that you just really want to um, stay consistent with and just really uh, hone in and you just keep getting better with time and as you keep growing. All right, good. Okay. I think that complete my three. Okay. Well, Create Your Life Series family, uh, it's been an amazing time. Uh, appreciate you all for being here. Hold on. We got somebody on Facebook Live. Let's see who is talking to us. Alicia Nash says that we have done a great job on the interview. So, Henry, you did a great job on the interview. Thank I'm you. here every Sunday, you know, so they're not really worried about me. It's you, man. All right. Thank <laughs> so, you. All right. So, beautiful people, uh, be blessed. Enjoy the rest of your week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Create Your Life series, where we help you maximize your potential and results in the area of personal development, entrepreneurship, and travel. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Create your life. Create ta propre vie. Create your life. 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 Create your life.